Thank you for that good word to us in song, dear brother, and thank you, Dr. Culberson, for your gracious words, and I'm so glad that you're in the pulpit here tonight on the platform with me. We both have, as he said, had a siege of it in the last trial three years ago. They... Uh, operated on me. I'm on a little less of it than there was when I was here the last time. I'm glad they didn't take out the preaching part anyway. Uh, I didn't have much weight to lose. I told the folks at the banquet to supper Saturday night that it's all right. They say that 40 million Americans are overweight. Anyhow, 40 million Americans are overweight. I guess you'd call that round figures. <laughs> but I don't belong to that aggregation, and I know now that I never will. It is uh, always a joy to come to Founders Week. The first time I attended Founders Week, the speakers were R.A. Torrey, James M. Graves, Leander S. Kaiser, Gresham Mason, Grattan Guinness, and William Jennings Brown. Amen. We had some giants around in the land in those days. We Lilliputians will do the best we can. <laughs> Sometimes you can get a lot out of an ordinary sermon. One of our foremost preachers down south said the other day, said, I never heard a sermon in my life that I didn't get something out of. Of course, he said, I've had some pretty close calls. <laughs> I hope this won't be one of those close calls tonight. I read from... Revelation, the third chapter of the text, is found in verse 20. These wonderful words of our Lord, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, if any one, hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The biggest business we have these days, beloved, is to discover God's program for this age and our part in it. In other words, find out which way God's going and get going that direction. I heard of a lady who uh, was getting a little exercised over the fact that she was getting along in years and hadn't found a husband. <clears throat> so she went to her pastor about it and he said, well, you know, the Lord has a plan, one man for one woman, one woman for one man. That's God's plan. You can't improve on that. She said, I don't want to improve on it. I just want to get in on it. <clears throat> now God has a plan, and you can't improve on God's plan, but you can get in on it. And that's the thing that matters. We don't have any time to waste chasing up blind alleys and exploring dead-end streets. We want to do the most good in the best way in the shortest time. 
We have only a few years to spend for Christ in the gospel. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ lasts. What's the best way to go about it? In a day when uh, most people already claim some sort of church connection, when the spiritual uh, minority in the average church is outnumbered by a host of Sunday morning glories that bloom at 11 o'clock and fold up for the rest of the week, when uh, suburbia molds the church more than the church molds suburbia, can we renew Christian faith and life in the midst of a country club Christianity? Can we expect revival in death in a shallow generation? Almost every preacher shares this concern today, unless he's a professional looking for a soft spot where he can feather his nest. If he's that kind of preacher, he ought to get converted or quit the ministry. Our Lord stands outside the lukewarm Laodicean church, rich and increased with goods and needing nothing, a church that nauseates him in which he says he is about to spew out of his mouth. And yet he says, if anyone will hear my voice, I've heard of churches and pastors so desperate that they threw away the church roll and started over. Well, we can't do that very well, but our Lord does almost the same thing in Laodicea. Dr. Campbell Morgan says he excommunicated the church. Dr. Morgan says the moment a man opens the door to the excluded Christ and Christ goes into communion and fellowship with that man, then that man and Christ excommunicate the church. How does the church return to fellowship? By joining Christ and that man. Dr. A.J. Gordon said a few spirit-filled disciples are sufficient to save a church. The Holy Ghost acting through these can and does bring back recovery and health to the whole body. You remember that when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf and lost fellowship with God, Moses pitched the tabernacle outside the camp, excommunicated the whole nation, Exodus 33, and then called those who sought the Lord to a new position of separation, and as they returned in obedience, they were received back into fellowship. Today the professing church bows to the golden calf of this age. We need a Moses to call God's people back to separation and to obedience. You remember in John 9 when the blind man was healed and was excommunicated from the synagogue? Our Lord met him on the outside and established a new center of worship. And they practically excommunicated the synagogue. Some churches today would practically exclude a man with a first-hand experience of Jesus Christ. He might be too disturbing. The synagogue represented religion. Here was our Lord with one man on the outside. That's not the last time that that happened. You remember in Hebrews 13 when our Lord, uh, we are told there, suffered without the gate and died outside Jerusalem. He excommunicated his nation and the whole world. And as we go to him without the camp bearing his reproach, we enter into a new fellowship. I like to call it the order of the outsiders. So our Lord stands at the door of the Laodicean church. Lord Jesus, thou art standing outside the fast closed door in lowly patience waiting to cross the threshold door. Shame on us, Christian brothers, his name and sign who bear. Oh, shame, thrice shame upon us to keep him standing there. And our Lord is gathering today a new church. 
the assembly of the anyone who will hear his voice and let the guest become the host, that's the creature, always has been. The rich, prosperous, lukewarm, world church, he will spew out of his mouth. This is the Savior's pattern, and if we follow it, doesn't mean necessarily pulling out of the old church. I don't know that he advised that anywhere. <clears throat> it means starting a new church in the same church. It doesn't mean thinning out the church by excommunicating the NFC. He didn't advise that. And there's a word of reproof, of course, here. I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. That's a word of reproof, but he also says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous, be boiling, you're lukewarm, you need to come to a boil, be boiling, and repent. You remember Isaiah thundered out in reproof, yes. God says, I'm full of burnt offerings and the fat of head beasts, I delight not my blood of bullets, lambs and he goats, bring no more vain oblations, incense is an abomination to me, your new moons and sabbaths, your calling of assemblies, I cannot away with, it's all iniquity, even a solemn meeting, but that's not all he says. After the divine disgust, <clears throat> come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And after the heavenly nausea over in Revelation, and it is nausea, I'm sick of it. But he doesn't stop with that, and we preachers shouldn't stop with it either. If anyone I hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. I stood in this church years ago with the Founders Week with Dr. William Ward out here somewhere. We watched the crowd assemble. I remember saying to him, this would be a fine place for a revival to begin, but I remember Dr. Ayer said yes, but they don't usually begin in meetings like this. <coughs> They usually start with a faithful minority trying to reach the unfaithful majority on the inside of the church and the unbelieving multitude on the outside. We have a notion today that if we had enough members and enough money and enough methods and enough means, we could win the world. God doesn't work that way. God can do more with a dedicated few than with an indifferent host. We've mobilized, and I think mobilized, an unwieldy multitude, and our size has become our greatest embarrassment. We can't reach the goal for stumbling over our own team. <clears throat> we furnish our own greatest interference. God's in the remnant business, always has been. Noah and his family, Gideon and his band, Elijah and the 7,000, Isaiah and the small remnant, Ezekiel and Daniel in the captivity, Ezra and Nehemiah in the restoration, Malachi and they that feared the Lord, Simeon and Anna, Joseph of Arimathea, Sardis with its faithful few. God magnifies the few. Straight is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. Many are called, but few are chosen. Where two or three are gathered together, if two of you the promise of prevailing prayer is given to a few, you notice, not to a crowd. One shall chase a thousand, two foot ten thousand of life, because lawlessness shall abound. The love of the majority, it really says, the love of most shall wax cold. Our Lord did his greatest work, not with a host, but with a handful. 
He viewed the crowd as shepherdless sheep, and he looked on them not with condescension, not with criticism, but with compassion. However, he didn't commit himself to that crowd. The teacher never did trust the throne. There's nothing more undependable than a crowd of people. One crowd wanted to crown him in John 6, but the day came when the crowd wanted to crucify him. He challenged the crowd in Luke 14, thinned it out with his preaching in John 6, and called out of the crowd a little band of disciples. That's always been his program. Gideon with his 32,000? Believe it or not, and no religious promoter today would ever say this, but you know what God said, you've got too many. Imagine anybody saying that now. Why, now you hear what we need, 50,000. 32,000 are not enough. So we'll have a process of elimination. 22,000 cowards, 9,700 careless, and that leaves the competent and the committed. We have about the same ratio today. Some are afraid to take a stand on unpopular issues. Others are careless, off guard, exposed to the enemy. And only a few alert, putting duty ahead of their own personal wishes. This present unwieldy mass of nominal Christians is not making much impact. Mediocrity only produces more mediocrity. We've got to rally somehow in these last days a core of expendables and try to move this age not by criticism of it. Better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. You can't shovel the darkness out of a room. There's no one way to get darkness out of a room, turn the light on. These dear people that are always fighting something. <clears throat> yeah, we're not going to make impact by that. Uh, I don't want to get in the business of always stirring theological garbage. It rubs off. <clears throat> you know, there are some things just doesn't uh, pay to tangle up with in this world. You, when you win, you lose. After all, a bulldog can lick a skunk, but it just isn't worth it. <clears throat> We're not going to win it by uh, conformity to it. We're going to meet it by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. A band like that upset the world one time, and they didn't do it by hiring a liaison man in Jerusalem. They didn't do it by setting up a lobby in Rome. They were just Christians in all the glorious implications of that word. A faithful fear on fire, that's my subject, and we need that as never before. There weren't many of them, there were just a few, 120, they were faithful, they continued with one accord, and they were on fire for cloven tongues, lighted upon them. Not enough to be just a few. I mean some rather stinky prayer meetings where some dear brother started off with that promise about where two or three, and I had a sneaking suspicion that he was more aware of the absence of the people than he was of the presence of the Lord. After the Wesleyan revival, little societies sprang up everywhere, you know, and change the course of English history. Faithful few on the fire. Christians have bigger business today than to sit around huddled in church 
basement sipping coffee and listening to the minutes of the last meeting. Oh, voice alone didn't spend his time down in the cabin bemoaning the storm. And they weren't having a seminar on the cause of Euroclidon. They got on deck. He took charge of the situation. We're living in a world tempest. And too many churches are in their elegant state rooms today. And too many Christians seasick in their bonds. And we belong on deck. We have a message from God. We were here first. We got the answer. We can't save the boat. Civilizations are donor, but we can save the passengers. And that's our business. <clears throat> For to make any impression for Jesus Christ on this wild, weird, warm world, we have to quit adjusting our schedule to fit his program. I go to so many places for a week of meetings, and they start apologizing before we get good and started. This is a bad week for a revival. When was there ever a good week for a revival? <clears throat> There's the circus on Monday night, and sons and daughters of our will arise. We're having a little get-together on Tuesday night. Then the ladies, garden clubs, going to discuss how to grow African violets on Thursday night. Then there's the ball game on Friday night, and of course there's always Ed Sullivan. <clears throat> we need the kind of revival that'll make the other crowd do the worry in. Why can't we have that? Oh, I know we're outnumbered. I think of that old army captain whose little band was completely encompassed by the enemy, and he cried out, Man, we're surrounded. Don't let one of them escape. <laughs> now that's the spirit that we need today. And instead of stopping steady courses on Thursday night so as not to conflict with the ball game on Friday night, we need revivals that will postpone the ball game. The early church in Rome didn't move up the evening service because there was a gladiatorial contest on at the Colosseum. We have the answer. And when we begin to take the leftovers from the programs of this world, the work of God loses priority and we lose our initiative. And when we cease to initiate, we begin to imitate. And we become just another local project like the Civic Club and the Community Chess. <clears throat> the Church of Jesus Christ has a solo part to play in this world. Use his priority and we lose our initiative. And when we cease to initiate, we begin to imitate. And we become just another local project like the Civic Club and the Community Church. <clears throat> the Church of Jesus Christ has a solo part to play in this world. She was never meant to play the accompaniment to anything. We are not here to uh, second the motion to all the projects by which Ahab and Jehoshaphat go up against Ramoth Gideon. If we are ever to regain the ground we've lost, it'll be when we recruit a persecuted minority scorning the values of this world and living on stringent discipline. Dr. Torrey said, let a few members of any church, if you want a revival, get thoroughly right with God themselves. That's the way it begins. During the revolution, we had minute men who fired the shot heard round the world. We need some last minute men 
pleading. Dr. Hughes of Trinity Church, New York, said no parish can fulfill its true function unless at the center of the leadership there's a small community of quietly fanatic, changed and truly converted Christians. Long ago it was said, give me ten men who hate nothing but sin, fear nothing but God, and seek nothing but the salvation of lost men. Now set the world on fire. The hope of this hour is not in massive projects in which we try to enlist that half-hearted support of the Gideon's first honor, but in dedicated bands like this little 300 who are willing to be torches for the truth and faggots for the faith and fuel for the flame of God. I'm getting tired of all this hand-wringing today about the fix we're after all, we know what the trouble is, and we know what the answer is. Most of us are afraid to do anything about it. The answer is to be just New Testament Christians, preach New Testament Christianity, and build New Testament churches. If you just try it out and get it see what happens. A mighty howl will go up. And they'll all say the same thing. You can't have a perfect church. We're not talking about a perfect church. We're talking about a New Testament church. The New Testament church wasn't perfect, but it had a standard, and the standard was not in perfection. They tried to live up to it, and they dealt with anybody who tried to lower it. We have standard time. We set watches by it. I'm glad everybody doesn't keep his own favorite brand of time. We have standard preaching music. We tune instruments by standard preach. I'm glad everybody in the choir doesn't decide to take off on a different key. I've been some places where I thought they did, but <laughs> it's about time we got back to a strong New Testament age. If we ever get back to a New Testament age, we'll find how flat we've been. Some time ago, a young couple danced all night in a Filthy nightclub came out in the morning on the street. One of them sniffed and said, What's that I smell? And the other said, That's fresh air. <laughs> I'm afraid the fresh air of normal New Testament Christianity would be a shock to the average church member today. The level of Christian living in the average church today is at such a low level you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship. <laughs> the flags got way ahead of the regiment, and instead of making the regiment catch up with the flag, and bringing the flag back to the regiment, we need to say to the regiment, the standard's been set. It's up to us. Catch up with it. Some are so afraid of a little excitement. We're going to have to start again and put self-denying, cross-bearing New Testament discipleship in bold type instead of in fine print. And if we don't, might as well take down our sign. God will start somewhere else or some other crowd on the other side of the railroad tracks. Be boring. We have too many folks who simmer all their lives and never do come to a ball. 
The course of every Christian movement runs from the cave to the cathedral. You remember that little band in the cave of Adullam, whose only business was to make David king. It's about time we gathered another band in another cave of Adullam, whose only business is to make the son of David king of kings and lord of lords. Too much of our religious activity today is done by old Adam in his Sunday clothes. You can build a big church that way, but when you're through, it'll be the Ichabod Memorial. <clears throat> and the church of the departed globe. God starts with a few. Billy Graham said one time, if he were a pastor, I think one of the first things I'd do would be get a small group of eight or ten or twelve men around me who'd meet a few hours a week and pay the price. Christ set the pattern, he said. He spent most of his time with twelve men. He didn't spend it with great crowds. In fact, every time he had a great crowd, it seems to me there weren't too many results. The great results came in his personal interviews and in the time he spent with his twelve. Now, I don't need to tell you that we're in a day of minority groups. The world's been set on fire for communism by little bands completely sold out to Karl Marx and the devil. Lenin said we want fewer but better disciples. We want people who are, not people who will give us a spare evening once in a while, but who will give us the whole of their lives. It was a minority group that brought about the decision on prayer in the schools and established a beachhead. And there are other loud-mouthed fringe groups who would obliterate every reference to God in our national life. Minority groups are turning the world upside down. <clears throat> Some of them are inspired of the devil, and their success is due, in part, to the failures of the church. Whitaker Chambers said, Communism is no stronger than the failure of other faiths, and I would say than the failures of Christians. <clears throat> The answer, beloved, lies in a minority group of dedicated Christians, and I don't mean run-of-the-mill church members. I mean true Christians who are already a minority group in pagan America. Dr. Malik said the other day, Christians must accept the lot of belonging to a permanent minority. And it doesn't have to be experts. Gilbert Chesterton said, Our civilization was very wise when it decided on a jury system in our courts. Determining the guilt or innocence of a man is too important to be trusted to train men. When we want a library catalog or discover a solar system or any trifle of that kind, we use special. But when we want to do something really serious and a man's life is at stake, we pick up 12 ordinary men standing around. He said the same thing was done by the founder of Christianity. I know one thing, if I were on trial, I wouldn't want 12 experts on the jury. They'd hang me for sure. <laughs> I don't want just 12 ordinary people, and I'm glad our Lord didn't choose 12 experts. And that ought to be encouraging to most of us. But let me give you this word of caution. Don't try to organize it either. The trouble with us Americans is every time the Holy Spirit starts something, we have to call a business meeting and elect officers. 
And I would say furthermore, these little groups must not become self-righteous clubs and a society of super saints looking down their noses in Pharisaic exclusiveness at all who don't dot their I's and cross their T's just like they do. Sometimes the assembly of the anyones imagines they're the only ones and they forget their obligation to everyone. Three years ago, I lay at the point of death. That night, a fine Christian nurse, head nurse on the floor, said, I'll take his case tonight. She'd already worked all day. And that night, I looked out from that oxygen tent, and whenever she wasn't watching me, she was praying. You like to have somebody like that around in a time like that. And I stuck a hand out, and I, I couldn't talk much, but I said, let's claim the promise. You do the praying out loud. And we did. And God heard. And uh, people were praying. They were praying up here. A great crowd of Southern Baptist preachers I was supposed to have been preaching to down south praying. Billy Graham and his team in Miami praying. I never had so many good people praying for me. And God gave me an extension. I don't know how long. I'm living on a postscript. And you know you have a strange feeling after that. It's like when your money is running out, you have to be careful how you spend the rest of it. And I've got no time to waste. I never did have, but I know now I have no time to waste from here on out. I don't want to go anywhere where they don't mean business. I'm not interested in a routine call. We need a meeting here. I happen to think about you. Could you come and hold a meeting? No burden there. I only want to go where people mean business. I've been preaching more in the last two years to preachers than in all of my life, and the same seems to hold. <clears throat> the next year, I don't understand it. But I love my brethren in the ministry. There have been a few during the years that didn't turn out right, but most of the men I've known in the ministry have been good men. They wouldn't have gone in to start with if there hadn't been a voice from heaven that spoke to their souls. <clears throat> I look into these upturned faces all over this country, and I'm finding a longing and a hunger for something better and something deeper that I haven't seen in a long time. And there's more than one young preacher today who already has his postgraduate degree. He's got his church in suburbia, and he's had his trip to Palestine, and all the rest of it. And yet somehow he's haunted by a heavenly whisper that says one thing without lackness. And some of them need, like Timothy, to kindle again, to rekindle the flame of God that's within them. Many years ago, I attended a little boarding school when I was a boy. They put me on a quartet. 
the only time I've ever been on a quartet. It was discovered early in my career that I did not belong on quartets. <laughs> we sang a silly little song that night. I remember it. Funny how you remember those things. My name is Johnny Johnson, and I come from Kalamazoo, and I'm selling kindling wood to get along. Now, if you want to help me, just buy my kindling wood, for I'm selling kindling wood to get along. Not a classic, exactly. But, <laughs> but you know, I got to thinking the other day, I'm not selling kindling wood, but for the rest of my days, I want to gather a little kindling wood over this country and start a few fires for Jesus Christ. And the only way we're going to meet this situation today is by starting with your kindling wood. When Mr. Moody was, I believe, in Baltimore for a meeting, some of the preachers got nervous and said, Moody, we're not moving along fast enough. Moody asked them, how do you start a fire? Just that. Now, I know how to start a fire. I grew up on top of a hill in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, western North Carolina, an old house up there where you can see five towns meet at night and the lights and the Blue Ridge Mountains on the west. <laughs> we had air conditioning. <laughs> Didn't cost a dime. My father used to wake us up at an unearthly. Our father always went to bed when everybody wanted to stay up and got up when everybody wanted to stay in bed. Father would call me and say, get up, make a fire. I was the wood chopper, the wood bringer in her, and the fire maker. And I'd go back in that old kitchen and uncover the ashes that had accumulated from the night before and devoutly hoped that There'd be some coals underneath. They were there that helped a lot. I put my kindling on the coals and blew and blew till I was blue. And then the flame came up and I put my middle-sized wood on. I already had the backlog in place when we had a fire. Now, if I had tried to set the backlog on fire first, I'd still be in that kitchen trying to start a fire because that isn't the way you start a fire. And if you pastor tonight, if you're going to wait till that backlog of unsaved or indifferent church members catches on fire first, you'll never have a fire. But you've got some kindling wood or your church couldn't run at all. And that's where you start. Anybody can be God's kindling wood. You're sitting out there tonight saying, I don't have much money and I don't have much talent and I don't count for much. You can be kindling wood. Haven't you read of forest fires that devoured thousands of acres of timber that started with a spark? You've got that much. We don't need better methods on fire. We need better men on fire. Human kindling wood anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit set ablaze the love of God, a flaming faithful few God's anyone's for each everyone. If this founder's week turns out to be just a glorified Chautauqua, featuring Paul and Apollos and Cephas, we've met in vain. But if there could be kindled a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours, 
And if that week's in, we could scatter like human sparks all over the country. There might be one last chance to set the land on fire. If you're going to spend this week comparing one speaker to another, and if we're going to be content to sit around arguing the new evangelicalism, theories of inspiration, the race issue, tongues and healing, Billy Graham, airing our pit peeves and personal grievances, we might as well have stayed at home and saved the expense of coming to Chicago. We draw up our little plans for revival and expect God to sign on the dotted line. God's not signing on anybody's little dotted line. When are we going to recognize the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit? When are we going to bow to Him? Would you be willing for the revival to start across the street at the other church? You want a revival? Yes. In your church, your denomination. Would you be willing for it to start with some other race? In some other nation? Old Sam Jones used to say it's mighty hard to say amen in the other fellow's meeting. Oh, do you know how to say amen in the other fellow's meeting? Some of us may have to swallow our pride and eat humble pie. And find ourselves saying, Lord, I hear of showers of blessing thou art scattering full and free. Showers of thirsty land refreshing. Let some blessing fall on me. Even me. Even me. Let some blessing fall on me. Maybe you're here from a church where you're having troubles and you've come hoping that there might be said this week that magic word that would solve the problem. Maybe there's a little handful from your church. Well, that's kindling wood. Here's a good place to start something. I don't have any detailed instructions about it. There must be a consciousness of need. There must be confession of sin. There must be cleansing by the blood. And there must be commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. And after we've done that, we have a right to claim the filling of the Spirit. I read an ad some years ago, wanted weeks, W-I-C-K-S, weeks, to burn out for God, all and life supplied. You furnish the weak, and God will furnish the all and the life. So we pray. May thy rich grace impart strength to our fainting hearts, our zeal inspire. And as thou hast died for us, oh, may our love to thee pure, warm, and changeless be a living fire. Make this the prayer of every one of us tonight, for Christ's sake. Our Father, we doubt that this thing could be settled by just walking down the church aisle. But might it please thee tonight to help men and women 
young people. To slip out of this church and not dissipate, and dissipate the holy influences of this sacred hour by any unwise conversation. And perhaps in some quiet place offer themselves as fresh kindling wood. Start a fire for God in their hearts and in their homes and in their churches and in their communities. We bow tonight to the absolute sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, who divideth not only gifts but everything else severally as he will. God forgive us for telling thee how to do it. God give us these days not what we want, but what we need, whether we want it or not. And do help us, Lord, to remember that the real purpose of prayer is that God may be glorified in the answer. We've sung it so many times, revive us again, but, oh, Lord, help us to start it right. Hallelujah. Thine, the glory. Then, revive us again. We trust thee, blessed Holy Spirit, to make due and proper application of thy word to our hearts tonight. Bend us, Lord, and make us thy kingdom word. We offer thee the weak, and trust thee for the all and the light. In Jesus' name, amen.